This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Genesis 50. If you have a smartphone or tablet, feel free to use that as well. We finished the book of Genesis today. I know it feels like we've only scratched the surface. We're beginning a journey through the entire Bible. We've started in September, in Genesis 1, and we're going to methodically work our way through it, surveying it pretty much at a higher level. One of the cool things that we're doing here is that everybody who comes to the building on a Sunday morning is studying the same passage of Scripture from youngest to oldest. So parents, you have an opportunity here. You know what your kids are looking at. There is no reason you can't ask them over lunch. Last week, Pastor John began the Joseph saga. Joseph is the second youngest of 12 boys born to Jacob, also known as Israel. He's the favored son, much to the uh, dismay of his brothers. And uh, as you recall, the story goes, Joseph's brothers staged his death. They doused his technicolor dream coat in blood, brought it to their father, Jacob, and said wild animals devoured him. Meanwhile, they had sold him as a slave into Egypt where he spent years growing up, going through difficult stuff um, until we come to the point where we're going to look at today in Genesis 50. um, Through Joseph's leadership, Egypt had stockpiled enough resources to withstand a famine that had struck the land. Unfortunately, Joseph's brothers and his father were in need Jacob caught wind of it, and he sent his sons to Egypt to ask for, to plead for some extra food and water. And who do you think the brothers end up pleading before? None other than Joseph. Let's take a look at how that goes. Genesis 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. I want to do something a little different with this text this morning. I want to do a deep dive into a doctrine that offers us resources that most of us have yet to tap into. The doctrine is the providence of God. I want to try to show you that if you lack joy in your life, if you struggle to forgive, if you're riddled with worry, if you're prone to nursing grudges, if you're easily angered or easily offended, you need this doctrine of the providence of God. Life outside of Eden is difficult, but we tend to compound our problems. When so-and-so says something that angers you, that alone is difficult, but we make it worse because we don't truly believe in a providential God. When life goes like this instead of that, 
we get anxious, but we compound our problems because we don't truly believe in a providential God. The providence of God offers us resources that most of us have not tapped into. We've not tapped into these resources. And these resources can help make us less bitter, less fearful, less angry, and simultaneously they can make us more joyful, more forgiving, more stable. So let's look at this. Here's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the definition of God's providence, the biblical foundations of God's providence, the applications of God's providence, and the gospel and God's providence. First, the definition. I'm going to quickly rattle through some definitions so you all understand what we're looking at, what I mean by the providence of God. The Westminster Confession of Faith defines God's providence like this. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, actions, things from the greatest to the least. John Frame defines it this way, God controls all things, inanimate creatures, the detailed course of nature, events of history, human lives, free human decisions, and even human sins. Abraham Kuyper, maybe his most famous quote, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. God does not stand at a distance from his creation. We are not deists. He doesn't stand at a distance from his creation. He is meticulously governing every movement. This is what we mean by the providence of God. Now, let's, let me show you where I'm getting that from in the scriptures. Okay, let's look at the biblical foundations of God's providence. Let's start with the passage in front of us, Genesis 50. Joseph says to his brothers, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Here it is. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, notice how Joseph phrases this. It's meticulous. It's precise. Joseph doesn't say, look, you intended to harm me, but lucky for me, God came in, swept in, and, and, and turned this thing around. It's not as though Joseph saw this as a chess match between his brothers and God. That's not what it says. There is a single event. Joseph trafficked as a slave. Single event. In one and the same event, there are two distinct intentions. His brother's intentions to harm, God's intentions to bring about good. In one event. So at no point in time were God's hands off the steering wheel of Joseph's life. They were there the whole time. God upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, actions, things from greatest to least. Let's look at some other examples. Maybe the most well-written story in all the Bible is the story of Esther. If you've not read it, I encourage you to do so. It's, it's, a, it's a quick read. It's a riveting read. There is so much in that story that had to go exactly right for it to turn out the way it did. If Xerxes never throws a party and gets drunk, 
He never makes a request for Vashti to come and dance for his friends. If Vashti's never requested, she never refuses the request. If she doesn't refuse the request, there's no beauty contest to determine who takes her place as queen. If there's no beauty contest, Esther never becomes queen. If Esther never becomes queen, Haman's decree goes forward and the Jews are annihilated. If Esther doesn't keep secret her nationality of being a Jew, Haman is never removed from his post. If Haman's never removed from his post, Mordecai is killed. If Mordecai is killed, he never becomes a lieutenant in the Persian government. There's the story. So much had to go just right for the people of Israel to be spared. It's remarkable. Additionally, additionally, the book of Esther contains 10 chapters. God is never mentioned. His name is absent. Yet you'd have to be blind not to see how he's involved. God upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, actions, and things from greatest to least. Let's think about another one. Let's think about a Christmas one. There were Old Testament prophecies that indicated the Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. But there's a problem. What's the problem? Mary and Joseph are in Nazareth. That's 90 miles away from Bethlehem. So if the angel's words to Mary that she would give birth to the Messiah are going to come true, and the Old Testament prophecies regarding where the Messiah would come from are also going to come true, they need to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Ladies, why would anybody do that in the third trimester of a pregnancy? Say, well, I'd hop in my car. You don't have one. You've got a donkey. Well, how does this happen? An unsuspecting pagan ruler named Gaius Octavius, a.k.a. Caesar Augustus, decided that was a perfect time to issue a decree for tax assessment purposes. The decree required Israel citizens to register in their ancestral homeland, which for Joseph was Bethlehem. Octavius was clueless as to Mary and Joseph's existence, and equally clueless about Old Testament prophecy. Yet God was using Octavius' administrative decisions to fulfill the scriptures. He upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, all actions, all things from greatest to least. Let's look at one more. The book of Philemon. This little-known book that gets very little attention. The Apostle Paul writes, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. So let me set the context. Paul is writing to a man named Philemon who had a slave named Onesimus. Now, slavery in the ancient world was much different than slavery in the new world. Slaves were treated in the ancient world much more humanely than the ancient world, than, than the new world, excuse me. In, the, in ancient slavery, race did not play a role in slavery. Ra uh, slaves came from every race, every nationality. In the ancient world, education of slaves was prized because it enhanced their value. Slaves had the ability to acquire money, to buy their freedom. Uh, so it wasn't a permanent condition. And I say all this not to defend the practice, but because I think it's important to understand Paul's argument in the book. So Philemon has a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away and somehow ended up under the influence of the Apostle Paul's ministry where he became a Christian. Now, in the Roman Empire, a slave running away from his or her master is still a crime. 
And it's still a loss to Philemon. But notice what Paul says about all that. Maybe the reason he ran away is so that you, Philemon, could have him back as a brother in Christ. In other words, Philemon, what looks like a loss to you may actually be a gain, both to God and to you. From God's perspective, maybe the reason you, you lost a slave is so that God could gain another son. God upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, actions, and things from greatest to least. Some biblical foundations. There are hundreds of places in the scriptures where this theme is, is present. So let's take those biblical foundations. Let's do some application. What are the applications of God's providence? Let me work through three of them. The first is in confusing times. In confusing times. Maybe the circumstances of your life are, are like this right now. Confusing. There are people and events that have caught you off guard. You didn't expect your life to, to look like it does today. Maybe you feel like you're walking through life in a fog, in a haze. The resources offered you in the providence of God can stabilize you during these times. Resources offered you in the providence of God can help alleviate your stress and even give you joy. How so? John Calvin, who lived through more than a few storms in his day, writes this. He says, when dense clouds darken the sky and a violent tempest arises, because a gloomy mist is cast over our eyes, thunder strikes our ears and all our senses are benumbed with fright, everything seems to us to be confused and mixed up. That sound like your life right now? Gloomy mist, thunder, storm, haze, fog. You never thought you'd be here. Look what he says. But all the while, even in the midst of that, a constant quiet and serenity ever remain in heaven. So we must infer that while the disturbances in the world deprive us of judgment, that is, the disturbances, the causes of those things may be hidden from us, God, out of the pure light of his justice and wisdom, tempers and directs these very movements in the best conceived order to a right end. You see what he's saying? You're going through a storm. You're going through a violent tempest. Your senses are benumbed with fright. You're stressed out. You're anxious. You never thought you'd be here. Calvin is saying, all the while, constant quiet and serenity remain in heaven. So we must infer that while we may not understand the causes of all this stuff that we see happening around us, God is directing these movements in the best conceived order to a right end. What about the situation of injustice? Consider Joseph. Imagine yourself asleep in your bedroom. One night, without warning, family members or close friends break into your house. They stealthily enter your room. They put a gag over your mouth and a bag over your head, throw you into a trunk of a car, drive you to the border, and sell you as a slave where you spend the next 14 years of your life. That's Joseph. For 14 years, he lived with this injustice, not knowing where God was in all of it. 
It took 14 years for Joseph to be able to look back and say, you intend to harm me, but God intended it for good. Now listen, friends, you have the story of Joseph. You've got it to lean on. Maybe you're living through some injustice. This injustice is going to rob you of joy unless you tap into the providence of God. Now listen, tapping into the providence of God in no way releases the guilty party from their accountability for their actions. In applying the providence of God, Joseph still lays the guilt at his brother's feet. You intended to harm me. They're still on the hook for this. He doesn't go into denial over it. No, he confronts them with their guilt. But in one and the same action, Joseph also sees God's good hand on the steering wheel. Bringing about good he couldn't see for more than a decade. So have you looked at your situation, your storm, your fog, your haze, your mist, your tempest? Have you looked at that? And have you been able to say, you have intended to harm me. But I know God intends this for good. What about in ordinary moments? What about in ordinary moments? A lot of the time, it's not the big things that send us down a dark road. It's the small things that go wrong, not the way we plan. They get under our skin. They're an irritant. They end up wrecking the rest of our week or our day or our month, whatever, right? It's the little things. Is God involved in even that? John Newton was an Englishman who lived in the 1800s. He was captain of a ship that transported slaves until his conversion at which point he became a pastor and one of Britain's leading abolitionists. You know John Newton best as the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace. One of Newton's lasting legacies are all his letters he wrote as a pastor. We make phone calls, we send emails, we send texts. That's how we counsel each other. Well, what if you don't have that? You write letters. Writing letters was one of the main ways John Newton pastored. And many of those letters have been preserved and survived and are published today. In one seemingly ordinary letter, this is what Newton writes. I want you to look for the providence of God in the ordinary moment. This is what he says. Madam, could I have known in time that you were at Mr. So-and-so's, I should have endeavored to have called upon you while there. And very glad should I have been to have seen you with us. But they who fear the Lord may be sure that whatever is not practicable is not necessary. He could have overruled every difficulty in your way had he seen it expedient. But he is pleased to show you that you depend not upon men, but upon himself. And that, notwithstanding, your connections may exclude you from some advantages in point of outward means. Let me translate this a little bit. Newton is writing to a female friend of his. Without knowing it, they were in the same town, but they missed each other. They didn't get FaceTime. When Newton finds out about this via a letter, he doesn't say, oh, rats, man. No, he sees God's providence even in that. God could have overruled the circumstances that prevented them from meeting up, but he didn't. Now, this is a pretty ordinary thing, right? It's a small thing. Okay, two friends happen to be in the same city at the same time. They, they didn't know it kind of ordinary, kind of small, but notice what Newton's doing with it. He's not saying, no, this is just a coincidental bummer. No. 
He's seeing God at work even in the smallest things. How many small things rob you of joy? The person who swooped in and took your parking spot. It gets under your skin, doesn't it? What would Newton do with that? Well, we could have fun with that, couldn't we? Tim Keller defined God's providence like this. He said, if you knew what God knows, just think about that for a minute. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he says. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he sends. Friends, you need to preach this to yourself every day. Every day. If you knew what God knows, you'd ask for exactly what he sends. Listen to me. At any given point in time, look up here. At any given point in time, God is doing a thousand different things in your life. And you might be aware of two of them. At any given point in time, God is doing a thousand different things in your life. And you might be aware of two of them. Let's look lastly at how the providence of God works in the gospel. Acts chapter 4. Let's look at this. The church believers are, this is in the context of a prayer. This is what they pray. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Do you see that? This is the conspiracy around Jesus' crucifixion. Indeed, all these human agents met together. They conspired to execute Jesus. Look at their next sentence. They did, the conspirators did, God, what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Imagine being the disciples at the foot of the cross. Put yourself there. One way to look at, at the cross is to say, what went wrong? We saw him walk on water. We saw him heal people. We saw him raise people from the dead. Now he's dying. What are we going to do? Where is the hope? This way of looking at the cross breeds anger, anxiety, bitterness, despondency, which is exactly what you will get when you don't account for God's providential rule in your life, from big things to little things. Every cross you experience in your life is going to breed anger, anxiety, bitterness, and despondency if you don't account for God's providence. Now, another way to look at the cross, a way that includes Acts 4, goes a bit differently. If God's providence is interwoven through the cross work of Christ, then the take is, is different. Your sentiment is going to be, on the one hand, this is a heinous crime. Jesus is innocent. He should not have to suffer like this. This is an atrocity. But in God's providential rule, Jesus is doing exactly what God wanted to have happen. Through this heinous atrocity, Jesus is saving many lives. This is not plan B. This is always plan A. This way of looking at the cross, on the one hand, breeds mourning and tears and grief. But it also produces hope. You know why? 
all the strings of human life and activity can be traced back to the loving hand of God who uses the junk of life to bring about extraordinary good. In Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, God was never forced to go to a plan B. Never. All of it went exactly according to plan, and that was plan A. This was God's way with his son, and this is God's way with all of his sons and daughters. Look, I know you've got pain in your past. Tremendous pain in your past. I know you do. But your life is still on plan A. God is not trying to play catch up. He's not trying to recoup the sour moments of your life. No, everything has gone according to plan. Because all the strings of human life and activity that have intersected with yours can be traced back to the loving hand of God. These are resources you need to learn to tap into every hour of every day. Let me leave you with this. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know that in all things, and we know that in some things, a few things, many things, a handful of things, a bunch of things, no, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Loving Father, give us a perspective from higher up. We are prone to diminish your power. We're prone to diminish your authority. We're prone to distrusting your goodness. We're prone to thinking our world and our lives are spinning out of control. We're prone to believing that somehow you have fallen asleep at the wheel. God, teach us to say and believe while people and circumstances may intend to harm me, you, God, intended all for good. Nothing that has transpired in our lives has caught you off guard. Even the smallest details have gone according to plan. Teach us to tap into the resources of your providence that we may find rest in the storm and comfort in the chaos. Remind us, God, that with our lives, with the way the world works, our churches, our country, our counties, our states, our family, everything, it's plan A all the time. And all the time it's plan A. For your glory and our good, we pray these things. Amen.